go to John chapter number three this morning. John chapter number three. If you've been here for the past, you know, eight weeks or so, then you're not surprised by that. You know exactly where we're going this morning. If you're new, uh, I'll tell you that our preferred way of teaching and preaching is to pick a book of the Bible and to work through it verse by verse. Uh, We feel that that allows the text and the Bible itself to control what's being talked about and you can't hobby horse the Bible and just pick your, your favorite passages or your favorite topics and just preach on that. But you have to look at what does it say and just let it guide you, which is our preference. We don't always do it that way, but probably uh, 75% of the time we're working through a book of the Bible, 25% of the time we're in maybe a topical series or, or picking just a passage at random. But most of the time we're working through a book and we, for the better course of this year, will be in John, and we're going to finish out the back half of chapter number three this week. Last week, we looked at the first half, which is the story of Nicodemus. If you've been around church for any length of time, you know the story of Nicodemus. But this particular passage is one that has a very famous verse, but the passage itself is, is not notable in the sense of people preach on it a lot. So there's a very famous verse, he must increase, I must decrease. How many of you have heard a sermon on that verse before? Okay, many of us have, but you probably have not heard a sermon on this entire passage to get the whole scope of it. That's for a couple reasons. Uh, Maybe it's because it's sandwiched in between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well, both very known passages, and sometimes this one gets overlooked a little bit. Maybe it's because of the ending. This has an ending that some, not all, but some would want to gloss over and just kind of ignore and act like it's not there. But uh, for whatever reason, it's not very notable in the sense that people preach on a lot, but we get to tackle it this morning, which I'm excited about. So let us read it together. We're going to read a decent passage of scripture. So if you have a Bible, look there. If it's on your phone or something, that's fine. If not, look on the outline that's inside of your bulletin. And if you don't have a Bible, go to the guest center. We would love to give you one. I don't care if you're a guest or not. We'd love to give you a Bible if you don't have one. But John chapter number three, look in verse number 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. After what things? Well, after Jesus was in Jerusalem there, ministering, talking with Nicodemus, what we talked about last week. And there he tarried with them and baptized. Now, quick note, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, just a few verses later, will make it clear that Jesus is supervising the baptizing, but he actually himself does not baptize. But his disciples are baptizing with him kind of supervising it. Uh, But there they are, and and Jesus and his ministry team, they're baptizing. And then verse 23, there was John, as in John the Baptist, also baptizing in Anon near to Selim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. So you have these two guys running similar ministries, more or less, in a similar region, baptizing both. And we're going to see a bit of friction that arises between uh, John's, the Baptist disciples, that kind of are, are peeved that Jesus is getting more notoriety than John the Baptist is at this point in time, because John used to be trending, but he's no longer, and Jesus now is, has a spotlight. So verse number 24, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John, and they said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, talking about Jesus, To whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, And no man receiveth his testimony, but he that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, 
The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Well, I'm going to give you three thoughts this morning. I think if you get these three thoughts, you'll understand this passage as a whole. And here are the three thoughts. The three thoughts are sign on the dotted line, know your role, and understand the alternative. Sign on the dotted line, know your role, understand the alternative. If you get those and you understand what those phrases mean, then you'll inevitably unlock all of what this text is trying to teach you. I'm going to start with sign on the dotted line, and I'm going to pick up the text actually midstream. So we're going to pick it up in verse number 31. This entire passage orbits around these few verses that are extolling the deity of Jesus and letting us know who Jesus is. So this is true to form for John. John over and over and over again. We're only three chapters in, but we've seen this week after week after week that he will step aside and let you know who Jesus is and how he is so different than anybody else. And he's not just another guy or another man or another prophet or another sage that he will take it. I don't know if they just had some version of belief, but we believe on you. And Jesus says, no, I'm not, I'm not committing myself unto you. I know all men. And it's very clear. I know what's in you and I don't need somebody else to tell me. I don't need another witness to step up and say, well, that's what's in them. That's what they're thinking. That's what's in their heart. I know what's in their heart, so I can be the solo witness and testify and tell you, I don't believe your belief. This is what verily, verily means, which is laced all through John's gospel. Verily, verily. Saying, I certify to you in advance of the truthfulness of what I'm about to say. In Jewish court of law, you needed a witness to verify what you said. And this is Jesus shoving that to the side and saying, I'm not a normal guy. I don't need a witness to testify of me. What I am telling you is my own testimony. I need nothing else because I have the authority to tell you. Now, this is why I get tickled at people that say, well, Jesus never claimed that he was anything more than a prophet. He never claimed he was God. He never claimed he was different. Give me a break. But do you see what he's saying? Do you see what he's telling you? That I'm the witness and I'm the one that gets to bring you the accuracy. I'm the one that gets to bring you the authority. I would further say this, that a witness gets to bring you advice. One of our own who's here somewhere, and I'm not going to close my eyes. I'm not going to point him out. I don't want to find him. Marshall Austin is in the room somewhere, and Marshall serves as an expert witness in trials, oftentimes in the States and, and even internationally. He's an expert in his field and serves as an expert witness, I don't know how many times, but a lot. So I called Marshall this week. I said, Marshall, tell me what an expert witness would give. I get that they would give like some clarity and some accuracy. I get they would have authority. What else would they do? And he more or less said, well, that's easy. An expert witness is hired by somebody, but they're not there to have their back. If the defense hires the witness, they're not there to just do what the defense tells them to do. They're there to bring accuracy, to bring authority, and to advise the court on what they should do with the facts. Their job is to tell the judge, to tell the jurors, I'm telling you, I see this clearly. I'm telling you, I have the authority to speak into this. And I'm telling you, here is what you should do with the data. So when Jesus says he's testifying, he's the witness, he is the one bringing to you advice. He has the, not just the authority, the liberty, the ability to step in and say, I can tell you what you should and shouldn't do. I should tell you to believe. I, I have the authority. I'm the witness. 
I'm telling you to turn away from that. I'm telling you to turn to this. I'm telling you to put off the old man. I'm telling you to put on the new man. I'm telling you to mortify the flesh and do away with that old you and that sin. I'm telling you to pick this up and live a life of graciousness and righteousness and holiness. He has, he has an ability. Why? Because he's the expert witness. He testifies. He gets to give you advice on your life. You say, okay, he's, the t- he's testifying. How do I receive his testimony? How do I say, yeah, I believe that? How, if, I'm, if I'm the juror and I have to weigh this out, what do I do? Verse 33 makes it very clear. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. Now, newer versions will, uh, they'll put in there that uh, you have somehow conveyed that God is true. You've somehow certified that God is true, something like that. Which certifying isn't, completely missing the mark. It's okay, but it's really missing what, what the original languages really say. Setting your seal was the ancient equivalent of signing on the dotted line. It was, I need to seal a letter. I need to put my stamp on something to say that this is valid, to say I sign off on this. So hot wax, right? Stamp the seal. This is my John Hancock of sorts that I'm going to, I'm going to set my seal on this. We would just say a sign on the dotted line. That's why this whole point is under sign on the dotted line. Because if you understand who Jesus is, you need to do something with that. You need to receive his testimony. He's testified. He came, he died, he was buried, he rose. You have his words. He's done his part. It's your job to now stamp your approval on it and to say, I sign my name to that. I'm certifying that, yes, I believe I've received his testimony. It's mine. That's something that, it's a way of saying salvation, it's a way of saying following Jesus that I sign on the dotted line. You say, that seems like signing my life away. It kind of is. But it's not something he hasn't already done for you because he signed his life away for you. So you signing your life away for him isn't actually that unreasonable. You know he's done it for you and you know he loves you. I recently was involved, I guess I still am to some degree, in purchasing some land for our church. There's a, a lot of land, like three acres, right off the back of our property, connected to our property that became for sale. And um, someone in the church saw that it was for sale and more or less said, hey, I want to buy this for the church. To which I said, great, you know, fantastic, two thumbs up. Um, so we constitutionally, we actually have to take a vote on purchasing land and things like that. So we did, some of you were here for that service a number of months ago where we did, you know, a vote, which was great and like 99.9%. Yes, let's get the land. Someone's buying it for us. So I received an original kind of uh, contract to glance over and just kind of, is there anything you want to tweak in this before I submit it to the seller? And then the seller can look at this and then we'll sign it. So I got it. I looked at it. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not great at real estate. So I, you know, involved some other people to look at it, made some phone calls, asked a couple questions, but more or less, yeah, we're good. Send it over to the seller. They made a couple tweaks. But then this last week, it came back to me. Now to sign. Now to actually make this official. Wouldn't you know it, I read that a little bit closer that I was actually going to sign my name to this. I read every letter. I read every word. I scrutinized it. I made a list of questions. I made sure that everything was understood to the best of my ability. That wasn't signing something that was, you know, that I didn't understand why. Because I was going to sign my name there. I personally fear there are a lot of Christians that more or less have glanced at Jesus and glanced at the contract and said, yeah, I believe, but have not signed their name. And Jesus would potentially say, I don't believe your belief. I don't think you've received my testimony and that you've actually said, 
I'm following, I'm committing, I'm pledging myself, sealing myself, signing myself. Uh, Yes, for sure, I'm in. This is me. I believe you're God in the flesh. You have the authority. I surrender. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about entering into Christianity, entering into a relationship with Jesus that I sign on the dotted line. I'm in. Now, if you have done that, then you can easily understand the first passage of this where John the Baptist is on the scene and John the Baptist has already done this. We know this from chapter one. He signed on the dotted line. He's, he's all in on team Jesus. And here is this passage that teaches us more or less to know your role. So I wanna read through this with you and pull out a few truths. Here, John, based on his understanding of who he knew Jesus to be, who he believed him to be, already has signed on the dotted line. This situation arises. Here's Jesus baptizing near John the Baptist, kind of in the same region. John the Baptist, we're told, is in Anon near Salim. We don't even know where Anon or Salim technically are, but we know Anon means springs, and we know that Salim means peace. So he's around an area that has a lot of springs, and then it goes on to specifically say he was there baptizing because there was much water there. He was there because of the springs, because there was a lot of water. Sidestep for a moment to baptism. This is one of the passages that I would use to defend the fact that we baptize people by immersion and not other modes of baptism. That the word baptize literally means immerse. That's what it means. If you've, who's played Battleship? Sunk my battleship. Played that? Okay, you could, instead of saying you sunk my battleship, you could say you baptized my battleship. That would be appropriate contextually. You immersed it, you sunk it, you plunged it. That's what the word means. And it goes on to say that John's over here because there was a lot of water there at the springs that he wanted to be there and baptizing. But Jesus's ministry team is baptizing as well. I will say if you've never been baptized, that would be a great next step to consider. Baptism doesn't make you saved. It doesn't give you entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but it is something that, is, that you are testifying to the Lord that I'm yours and you are mine. And even you testify to other people. It doesn't have to be around other people, but it oftentimes is. It's, it's something that does not save you and it doesn't accomplish your salvation, but it is meant to accompany your salvation and to be alongside of it. It really is. If you've never taken that step, I would encourage you to put it on your connection card. Call me about baptism. We'll call you. We'll have a conversation about it. But here they are baptizing. There's this conversation that unfolds about purification. We don't even know exactly what that was, why, what exactly they're talking about, but this led to a deeper conversation apparently. And they come to John in verse number 26 and they say, Rabbi, He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness. We looked at that in chapter one. John the Baptist stepped on the scene and said, this ain't about me. I am the pre-show. Jesus is the main show. I'm just the guy paving the way. I'm just the dirt crew out here making the way for Jesus. All eyes on him. He gets the limelight. He gets the credit. Shift it from me. Don't look at John. Look at Jesus. Go to him. Some of John's disciples leave John and go follow Jesus. And you see that unfold at the end of chapter number one. So here they come to John and said, this Jesus, you bear witness of him. All men come to him. A bit of an exaggeration that's probably motivated by their insecurity and their jealousy and their, their wanting to, they're wanting to, in a roundabout way, discredit Jesus or, or look and say, you know what? No, we should keep these people. Why are they going over there? We used to be really popular. We used to be, you know, the, the big kid on the block. We used to be where everyone was going, but now it's not happening that way anymore, John. There's, there's a problem with this. What's, what's going on here? 
John goes on to say, verse 27, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Look, guys, everything I have is because God gave it to me. This isn't about me. I didn't do this. I, I didn't, I'm not the one drawing the crowds and making this happen and winning people to myself. I'm, I'm not trying to self-promote here. This isn't about me. I've received this from God. It's his, it's his gift. Verse number 28. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm, I'm, I'm him sent before him. Guys, you just told me you remember this. I literally looked you in the face and said, this isn't about me. This is about Jesus. He's the one that gets all the credit. And now you're coming back to me and you're telling me, let's make this about us and look at Jesus. He has all the notoriety now. Like, what's your deal? I, I told you this already. And you just told me that I told you this. So why has it not sunk into your head yet? I, I don't get what's happening here. Verse number 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. We looked at that in chapter two of Jesus looking and saying, I'm the bridegroom and this is the bride that I am giving my life for, the church, the, those that I'm redeeming, those that I'm paying for is my bride. Look, he, Jesus, is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. What's he saying? Guys, I'm the best man. I, that's, that's what I am. I'm the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is his bride. I'm just over here on the sidelines saying like, I'm really glad he found her. I'm really glad this is happening. Look, they met, they're getting married, they're coming together. And I'm just over here. I rejoice when I see this and my joy is full. I'm as happy as all get out that Jesus is popular and Jesus is having people come to his ministry and people are following Jesus. This is awesome. I'm over here happy and elated. You're over here bitter about what? What's the deal here? He must increase, I must decrease. Like he bottom shelves it for him. Like guys, I know who I am. I know my role. I know, I know what I'm supposed to be doing and what I'm not supposed to be doing. God gave me this. This is it. This is it. Several things I'll say to apply this. One, is John the Baptist a bad leader? Yes or no? It's not a trick question. Is he a bad leader? No. He's a good leader. Is Jesus a bad leader? No. Are the people going from John's team to Jesus' team bad people? No, they became some of Jesus' closest friends and deepest disciples. Were the people switching from John's team to Jesus' team have bad motives and ill intentions? Not that we're aware of. So here is a good leader with some good people with good hearts and good intentions. And there's another good leader, close proximity, and they go over and follow that leader. Does this not happen all the time in church world? Is it? I've been pastor here a couple years. I've already seen this a lot. It's a two-way street. There are people that are coming into your church from another church that good pastors, good people, loved it, taught us something for a season, but now here, there are people coming out of our church for one reason or another, good people, good hearts, going to another leader for a good season. That's okay. It's okay. Now, am I biased? I think this place is awesome. Yeah, Absolutely. Do I hope that all of you leave here this morning and never come back? No, not a chance. But 
Is that okay that that happens? Sometimes I've seen people get in a tizzy and get all up in arms about this and that. Anathema to you. You're not part of our tribe. You're not one of us. Get out of here. We want nothing to do with you. That's crazy. That's unhealthy. That's unbiblical. There are times where there are good leaders, good people, good intentions, and, and God mixes up the ministry teams a little bit for his kingdom and his purpose, and that's okay. That's okay. I would also say this. Do you know your role? We can look and say, Good on you, John the Baptist. You knew your role. You understood it was from God. You understood he had a plan from you. You understood it was all about Jesus, pointing people to him. He must increase. I must decrease. Great for you, God. Good humility. What about you? Do you have the humility to say it's not about me? It's not about my, my gifts, my talents, my abilities, my ministry, my effectiveness, but it's about Jesus and pointing people to Jesus? Do you have the boldness to ask, what's my role? God, what have you given me that I need to do? Where do you want to deploy me? John knew very clearly what his role was. You say, well, that's, you know, he was prophesied in the Old Testament and he had a preacher for a daddy and he had a miraculous birth. Like he had a leg up on me. I'm telling you, you have the spirit. If you know Jesus, you have the spirit of God inside of you and he wants to use you. He has gifted you in unique ways spiritually. I can prove that to you from 1 Corinthians that he gave you a spiritual birthday gift when you got saved and he wants to use you. Your gift may not be my gift and my gift may not be yours. That's what the body is all about. There are different parts. They differ from each other, but they all work together in unity and the hand's not the foot and the foot's not the mouth, but they all work together. So I can't tell you what your gift is. I can't tell you specifically what your role is. I can tell you you have to be humble enough to point people to Jesus, but do you know your role? Are you willing to pray and say, God, I don't feel like I know my role and how you want to use me for the kingdom specifically, how you want to deploy me for your name's sake. God, would you show me? When's the last time you prayed anything close to that? God, what do you want to use me for? How do you see me being used to serve your kingdom? Ask him. I dare you to. I dare you to have the boldness if you feel like I've really, I don't know, I don't have a job. I just kind of, I'm on the sidelines. I come, I sit, people minister to me, people build me up, people encourage me, but I'm just kind of here. I dare you to ask God, God, how do you want to use me? Show me. Would you give me an opportunity? It may be a little bit outside your comfort zone. The mission trip may not be exactly what you want to do. It may stretch you a little bit. The ministry opportunity may seem a little bit unnerving to you. But if you'll step out in faith and trust that, you know what? There's people around me trying to help me, push me, grow me. And, I, and I'm myself wanting to, wanting to grow, wanting to be pushed, that you'll be glad that you did. I got an email this week from someone that more or less said, I was asked, and I didn't even ask them, it was somebody else. I was asked to do a particular ministry job here at the church and it felt like it was in a different weight class. It was outside of my comfort zone. I I didn't know if I would enjoy it. I didn't know if I would be good at it. And I was very hesitant, but I said yes. And this week I began said ministry and I am so glad I did. I am so glad I took the step and pushed myself a little bit because it was awesome and I can't wait to see what God does furthermore. Have you ever had anything like that? 
Because there is a role for you. There's a design for you. There's a part for you to play. There's a function for you inside of the kingdom of God. I would even say inside of this local body, there's something for you to do. Some of you, your parents spend a million dollars on your braces and you have great smiles and you would be awesome greeters or ushers or just being friendly to people. Some of you have awesome voices and you can jump in the choir or you can sing or you can use that talent. Some of you are great with kids and you're more that role. Some of you are administrative and you're behind the scenes. Some of you are great with your hands and you can fix stuff or you can clean stuff. I don't know what it is, but there's something you can do. I promise you, I promise you, everybody has a part to play. So are you humble enough to deflect it to Jesus? Are you willing and bold enough to ask God, God, what is this that you want me to do? I hope that you will. William Carey said this. He said, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. That's more or less what John's saying. He's saying, this isn't about me. I have, I have, I'm humble enough to admit this is not about me. This is about Jesus. Now you have to know that there's an evil antagonist who wants to fight you in this. And it's yourself. King self is someone who wants to rule your life, keep you in bondage. King self was born into authority, wanting his own way over and over and over again, being served from the earliest of days. Your own self, your king, will stop at nothing to sit on the throne of your heart. King self will go so far as to make Jesus prime minister as long as he can stay king. So you do have to understand your role. No matter what function, what part you play, you have to understand, he increases, I decrease. I have to understand that. That's a battle for me. Pride of life is real. That this is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And I'm humble enough to admit that. Lastly, understand the alternative. Only verse or section we haven't covered thus far is the end of the passage. We're told in verse number 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. You say, okay, awesome. I sign my name to the dotted line. I believe, I receive his testimony, I receive eternal life, I'm gifted by God's grace, heaven, I need to understand my role and that God wants to use me somehow, but what if I don't sign? What if I say no? What if I do not receive his testimony? What if I say, you know, there's some validity to Jesus, but not all the way. I'm kind of partially there, but not all the way. What if I don't sign? Verse 36 will tell you the alternative that you have to understand. You have to understand. He that believeth not the Son, two things, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The absence of life the presence of wrath. Most, I can't say most, many would read that and collect the offering real fast. But it's there. I think this is one of the reasons this text isn't preached a ton. But the wrath of God is a mega theme in scripture. You, you honestly cannot miss it if you miss, if you read the Bible for any length of time. Now let me help you understand this, okay? I'm gonna talk saved person, unsaved person. I believe I do not believe. I receive the testimony. I reject the testimony. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground. One or the other. There's two things for each. For a Christian in this life and in the life to come. For a non-Christian in this life and in the life to come. I'm going to call it, for the Christian, hands-on, hands-off. 
For the, uh, for the non-Christian, it's the opposite. Hands off, hands on. Here's what I mean. If you're a Christian in this life, you are told very clearly that because of the love of the Father, he will discipline you. Hebrews 12 uses the word chastise, but it makes it very clear that out of a heart of love, if you go off path, he will try to get you back on path. Why? Because he's a dictator? Why? Because he's manipulative? Why? Because he just wants it to be his way? No, because part of it is it does need to be his way because he knows it, but part of it is that path leads you to life. It's for your own benefit. His glory, you're good, both. They're not mutually exclusive. So you gotta know if you're a Christian in this life, hands on, God will direct you and chastise you. If you doubt that, just read the Old Testament. It's a big, long cycle of, yay, God. Then, oh, we're walking away from God. Then he spanks them. Yay, God again. Then we walk away from God. Then he spanks them. Just over and over and over again. But all of that spanking, chastising punishment is because of a heart of love for them to get them back on the right path. But in the life to come, after you are done here physically, there's a resurrection one day and praise God for that. But when you're done here physically, you're 60, 70, 80 years, no matter what it is, the wrath is off. The Bible is abundantly clear in Thessalonians, a revelation that you have been removed from wrath, that the Father poured out his wrath on the Son who absorbed the punishment for you so that you can rest assured. You don't have to go to sleep tonight with one eye open and a helmet on. You don't got to wonder what's going to happen to me when I die. I've received the son. I have eternal life. I know I'm going to heaven. I can rest assured and bank on that. There is no wrath for me, not because of what I've done, but because of the grace of God. That's awesome. So if you're a Christian, hands on this life, hands off next life, no wrath for you. Now, if someone does not believe it's the opposite, both are wrath, but it's hands off then hands on. Romans 1 makes this abundantly clear. The texts are in your notes. You can read it yourself. But Romans 1 says that the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. And the way that God does this is God gives them over. It uses the same phrase almost three times. God gives them over. God turns them over. God gives them over to a reprobate mind. God basically says, do what you want. You know what? You reject me, stiff arm me, walk away from me. Hands off. Do what you want. Have it your way. So a lot of hamburgers, but it's not a great way to live. Have it your way. Go ahead. Do what you want. That is what I would call passive wrath in this life for unbelievers. This solves the tension in many of the Psalms. If you've ever read, especially Asaph's Psalms, Asaph will basically say, God, I'm a good guy. I'm trying to live holy for you and righteous for you. And I'm doing, I'm doing the work of the kingdom. And look, my life is not going that great. But look over there. There's people that they don't, they don't like you. They don't love you. They don't live for you. They're, they're unholy and they have money and they have clothes and they have their health. What's going on here? It seems like the table should be turned, that it should work out for me and not work out for them. But if you'll keep reading the Psalms, it will always conclude with a big picture perspective that there's more to this life than this life and that the passive wrath is going to turn into active wrath and that this life is just a brief little snapshot. And then next life for an unbeliever, active hands-on wrath of God that John 3 is talking about. And if you do not believe, you do not have life, but the wrath of God abides on you. You say, hold on, that, this is why I don't like church, Pastor Mark. You know, 
hellfire, damnation, you know, do what God says or a light you on fire. Like we're in a Scooby-Doo episode, just run around scared all the time. And that's, you know, it's, this is why I had, I had this a lot as a kid. I don't want this anymore. God's love, right? God's love. There can't be wrath. How does this work out? That sort of stuff. So let me speak into that and I'll be done. Number one, this is why you need the witness. Because the witness says, I'm from above. I have the authority. I have the testimony. You're not on the witness stand and I don't need your input. I'm going to tell you how it is and it's your job to sign on the line and believe it. So really what you think doesn't matter all that much. I know that's blunt and it seems unkind. I'm not trying to be unkind. I love you, but that's the truth. Secondly, it is not unreasonable for a just God who is just to say that there will be a punishment in the life to come. Philosophers have argued about this over the years that that one says, you know what? It's the opium of the masses to believe that one day there will be something good. My life is terrible right now, but one day I will die and I will have treasure in heaven and then it will be good. And that's the opium of the masses that's just making people docile and drift through this life. I would argue the opposite. The opium of the masses is to say, there's no punishment. There's no consequence. Do what you want. If you escape the law and you escape Interpol in this life, then have at it. There's no consequence. You don't have to answer to anybody. There's no accountability. Dust to dust, ash to ash, the end. Just, just motion, matter in motion, you know? And after the motion stops, it doesn't matter anymore. And it's done and it's over and there's no consequences. That allows me to do whatever I want and not feel any guilt about it. And the truth is that there is and are consequences for what we do. And those who reject Jesus, the wrath of God is on them. See, I still don't feel that's fair. We humanly treat treason as an offense that is punishable in the highest degree. If you work against the king in his mission or against the president in his mission and you betray him or commit treason, you're gonna get life in prison or you're gonna get the death sentence. And there's not many that would say that that's unreasonable. For an earthly king. What this boils down to is a far inflated view of ourselves and a far deflated view of God. Because our sin at its core is cosmic treason. That God said, here's what it is. Here's how it should be. And we say, we don't want that. I reject that. I want to do it my way. I want to live life however I want to do it. No, I will go against the kingdom. I will go against the mission. I will go against the holy God. And that's enough. But then God sends his son who dies on a cross and says, you know what? I'll absorb the punishment for you. I will let you off the hook and I will, I will let it all go. I'll forgive you if you believe on me. And then we double down and we say no again. No, I'm not believing in that. And then we think I'll have, I'll have ground to stand on. I'll stand before God one day and say, God, it's not fair. Your wrath, you can't do this. Where the Bible tells you very clearly in Romans 3 that every mouth will be stopped that everyone will stand there and there will be no excuses, there will be no wiggling out, there will be no escape clauses, there will be no hall passes given out on that day. That you will see it for what it clearly is. If you don't now, you will one day. And that there is accountability and for those that reject Jesus, it's very clear, the wrath of God abideth on them. You say, I don't like that. It's not up to you to like. I personally don't like it that much either. If I'm being honest. If I could rewrite that verse and it was up to me, I probably would, but it's not up to me. 
I don't, I don't get to edit that. I just get to tell you what it says. I'll illustrate one more time and I'll be done. If you have a 16-year-old who gets their license and you have tried to teach them, you've tried to train them, you want them to drive responsibly and they finally get their license and you're going to give it one last-ditch effort to sit Johnny down. Hey, Johnny, you need to wear your seatbelt. Don't, don't drive 100 miles an hour. Obey the speed limit. Bad things will happen. Don't turn your lights off at night and see how far you can drive in the dark for the fun of it. Be real, who's ever done that, okay? You know you have. Don't do that. Johnny, let me show you a picture. I'm gonna Google it. Rex at 100 miles an hour. Look at that. You don't walk away from that, Johnny. That's why you don't drive that fast. You're not surviving that. You're not surviving that. And Johnny says, mom, dad, I'm sick of your scare tactics. I'm done with you trying to scare me. Show me these pictures. Show me what the consequences will be. How dare you? I'm going to operate by my own rules and I'm going to do my own thing. I'm sick of your scare tactics. I'm done. You would say, Johnny's dumb. Johnny's dumb. Johnny would be dumb. I'm going to go operate by my own rules and run the risk of losing my life. And that's what verse 36 is designed to be. It's designed to be, Johnny, look. Here's the consequences. I'm not trying to be heavy-handed. I'm not trying to threaten you. I'm just trying to help you see. Walk away from what I'm saying. Ignore my advice. You don't run the risk of losing your life. You can bank on it. You will lose your life. You can bank on it that there is wrath coming. It's not pretty. Don't do it. Look at the alternative. You say, you're trying to scare me. It's a scary thing. Hell's hot. Forever's a long time. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So if you're scared at that, I'm okay with that. I personally came to Christ. A lot of it was due to me not wanting damnation and not wanting wrath and not wanting hell. And knowing that it was there and saying, I'm no thank you, I'll sign on the dotted line completely. Now I've learned since then that my salvation is far more than a get out of hell free card and there was far more life here and now to offer to me and it's the best decision I ever made, not just because I escaped wrath, but deeper than that. And I believe with all my heart that you will learn that too if you sign on the dotted line and believe in Jesus. But if you have not, do. And if you don't, at least know what the alternative is. What's your role? What's your next step? What part are you gonna play? Can you do that with humility? Can you set aside yourself and put Jesus on the throne of your heart? Can you play that role with humility? I hope that you can.